John chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea, and he was and he went again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, so Jesus is going from Jerusalem north to Galilee. He has to pass through Samaria. Jews were allowed to pass through Samaria if they were walking away from Jerusalem. That was fine. They were not allowed to walk from the Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria or else they would be diverted by the Samaritans. They didn't want people going to Jerusalem to worship. They allowed people to leave. So there was no problem with his passing in this direction. And it says he was weary, and it was about the sixth hour. So depending on whether we're talking about Roman time or Jewish time, it's 12 or 6 p.m. But it is the heat of the day, probably, and it says, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Very unusual for a woman to come all alone. Women would always usually come with other women. That's why we probably think that it was the heat of the day, around noontime. Unusual to be out at noontime because it's so blazing hot. Even Jesus was wearied. So she comes out to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And her terminology here was a little bit stronger than we get from the English. It, it's, how is it you, the Jew, ask of me? So it's almost as if it's a derogatory thing. You are the Jew. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? Almost as if she is racially better than him. How dare you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm somehow better than you. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. So he says, I've got something much better for you. This is the constant message of the gospel. It is a gift. It is a gift. God gives the gift of his son. The most beautiful gift that you can think of is the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happens if you're walking down the road and you're walking down the road, say, with a three-year-old and you're holding the three-year-old's hand, you're walking down the road and a big dog comes running toward you growling? What are you going to do? You're going to take that child and pick up that child and turn away from the dog and defend the child, right? You defend the child with your own life. You won't take the child and say, here you go, take the child, leave me alone. You're not going to do that. You will defend the child. You'll always defend the child. God demonstrates His love toward us in that He gave us His Son. 
the one whom he loves the most, he gave as an expression of love on our behalf. It's even more than an expression of one giving oneself. I will give myself for the life of a three-year-old. He says, I take the very best I have. The whole message of the gospel is the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I have a gift. If you had asked of me, give me a drink. If you asked me, I would have given you, given you living water. I have something so much better for you. So much better for you than you can imagine. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. He has so much better for us than we could imagine. We think that we want the things of the world. Lord, give me this. Lord, give me that. Give me, give me, give me. My name is Jimmy. Give me, give me, give me. <clears throat> God has said, I have so much better for you. So many better things for you. So she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? So he's speaking on a spiritual term, and she's continuing to speak in this condescending way. Look, you've got nothing to draw with. Yeah, I've got something to draw with, but you don't. Where are you going to get this water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You're not better. You're not greater than our father Jacob. Are you? Who gave us this well, drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. You see the suggestion here? She is suggesting that even the cattle of Jacob is worth more than you. They drank, even the cattle drank from this well. You're not better than them. You know, Jesus didn't get flustered by this. He didn't get offended like, do you know who I am? He didn't say this at all. When you witness, when we are called to witness and to share with people, they may say things that are racist. They may say things that are condescending. Just let it roll right off you. Jesus took this. Didn't even phase him. He's going after her soul. He's on a mission here. He's going after her soul. She suggests that even the cattle is worth more than he is. She still hasn't gotten him any water. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. Verse 14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. I have got something so much better than these earthly things that you're worried about. I've got life eternal. Remember, in the lost, there is no life. Those who are not in Christ are dead. They are spiritually dead, separated from Christ. Forever they will be separated unless they get saved. Forever they will be dead. You may say, this friend of mine is very nice, but they are dead. They are dead spiritually. The enemy will have you think about how wonderful a person they are so that you do not go after their soul. Jesus is going right after this woman. He says, I've got something for you that is worth so much more. Worth so much more. 
And if you have this, it's going to be a well of water springing up to eternal life. There's a hope in Christ that can keep us filled to overflowing. It is a shame that many believers let that dissipate by neglecting time with the Lord, by neglecting fellowship with the Lord. It doesn't take very long to go without the Lord, to start seeing our very selves come out. And it's never pretty when our selves come out. You can tell a person who has spent time with the Lord. You can tell a person who lives a life of spending time with the Lord. They're different. There's something different about them. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I don't have to be thirsty nor come all the way to draw. You see how sarcastic she's being. Jesus is trying to share life with her. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and they start getting sarcastic with you? Well, welcome to the world of the Messiah. And it didn't faze him a bit. He's going after her soul. She speaks condescendingly racially. She speaks as if cattle is worth more than him and his life. She's speaking sarcastically to him giving her the truth. You say, well, maybe he should have read that verse, don't throw your pearls before swine. No, he didn't apply that verse here. Must have a different application. It has nothing to do in evangelism. Not in a case like this. He said, he said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you correctly said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you've said truly. Look how gracious the Lord is. He said, call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He didn't say, why you tramp? You are just lying. You've had five husbands and you're living with a guy. You tramp, you prostitute. And you're trying to speak poorly of me? Look at your own life. No, that's not what he said at all. He took her lie, that I have no husband, and he turned it into a truth. He said, you have answered correctly. I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband. This you've said truly. He took her lie, and he turned it into a truth. You see how gracious the Lord is? How kind He is. He took the woman's lie, the woman who's speaking condescendingly to Him, and He says, you know, I could work this thing to make it sound truthful. Because the guy you're with now isn't your husband. So you say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've answered truthfully. I mean, He's just building her up constantly. Jesus was most forgiving with the sexual sinner, actually. There are four women that are listed in the uh, in, in in the Gospels, there are four women that are listed in the Gospels in the genealogy of Jesus, and uh, um, and in in Matthew chapter one, there's four women that are listed, and every one of them had some sort of sexual disorder. It's all men listed except four women. It doesn't list Sarah. It lists four women in, in the Gospel according to Matthew. In verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1, it lists Tamar. Tamar was the one who had an ancestral relationship with her father-in-law. It 
it lists Rahab, who was a harlot. It lists, it, it lists Ruth. Ruth was the product of an incestual relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. And then it lists Bathsheba, who David had essentially raped. And so, so of all the women that he should list, it's all women who had some sort of sexual disorder in a way that, that other women would look poorly upon them. Jesus has the most mercy on sexual sinners. It's always ministering to prostitutes. Jesus is so merciful. So if you think you're beyond his mercy, you're wrong. You're not beyond his mercy. The woman in verse 19 of John chapter 4 said, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So all of a sudden she gets spiritual with him. She starts talking about, you, you people say in Jerusalem, we worship over here. Jesus said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus was not going to compromise on that. He said, salvation is from the Jews. There is salvation in Jesus Christ and in Him only, and in that we do not compromise. There is salvation only in Jesus Christ, through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. There is salvation only in Him. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus. On that we do not compromise. It is all through Him. But an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, He will declare all things to us. So this she had right. She had hope in the Messiah. And then Jesus reveals Himself to her. She shows her faith that Messiah is going to come and explain all things. Jesus said, I who speak to you am He. In fact, if you look in the Young's literal translation, it says, I am He who is speaking to you. I am the great I am. Why, why the New American Standard breaks that up? Where He says, I am, I who speak to you am He. It's really, I am He who speaks to you. He uses the terminology that any scripture reader would get. The great I am. That is my name. What shall I tell them? Who should I say sent me? He says, he told Moses, I am sent you. I am he who speaks to you. At this point, the disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. So this woman leaves her water pot. So in other words, she came to get water. She left without water because all of a sudden she's seen the living water. She left her water pot, which someone would not normally do, with these 12 men plus Jesus standing around. 
she runs back, and who does she share with? She shares with the men of the town, which tells us what kind of woman she was. Because if she were just a regular woman, she would run and she would tell her women friends. And she would run and she would say, Ethel, did you know what that man said to me? And they'd be going back and forth and just chatting away. But she runs and she tells the men. Because she's got no women friends. If she had women friends, she would have come out of the normal hour, not in the heat of the day, with the women to get water. She's a loner. Women who have a sordid past, other women don't want to be around them. I met a bartender recently among the students. I was witnessing to them, and he ended up coming to the Lord. He was a, a graduate student at one of the universities I was visiting and told me he used to be a bartender. I said, let me ask you a question. Do women bartenders get tipped poorly by women who order drinks? He says, oh yeah. Women who order drinks, they always look poorly upon a woman bartender. So when we would work in the bars together with women, if there was a woman came to the bar, a man would serve that woman because they all split the tips and a woman wouldn't tip a woman bartender well. Because they look at that woman as if, you know, she's not a good woman, I'm not going to give her much, if anything. Women have a way of judging other women who they think have a sordid past. But men welcome them. She went to the men. And the men start coming out to see. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him any food to eat, did he? And he, you give him food. Jesus said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Jesus isn't even hungry anymore. Because he's evangelizing. Because he's sharing the gospel. He's not even hungry. I mean, he's just, he's just in the zone, focused on this woman, knowing that she's gone back to bring a bunch of men. He's just bringing in disciples, bringing them on in. Jesus said to them, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. He says, this is my food. This is what I rejoice in. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Do you not say, there are four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages. He who reaps, he who reaps in the context of bringing in people, he who reaps is receiving wages. God is rewarding that one. He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. God is rewarding that one and he's gathering fruit. So the wages aren't the fruit. The wages are something else. And he's gathering fruit for life eternal. The fruit of the people he's gathering in for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Okay, so. I am not an evangelist. An evangelist is someone like Bill Bright. They said Bill Bright, the one who founded Campus Crusade. Most of you have never even heard of him because he died 20 years ago. But Bill Bright, it was said that you could get in an elevator with Bill Bright. Before it hit its next stop, 
He's evangelized to the person. The person's on their knees repenting and giving their life to the Lord. That guy was an evangelist. Everywhere he went, people were getting saved. I'm not an evangelist. But I've always wanted to evangelize. I've always wanted to share the gospel. I've knocked on doors all around. When I was, when I, when I was an undergraduate, I was knocking on doors. When I was a graduate student. And I would usually see throughout my life, the pattern was, I'd see two or three people a year come to the Lord through my witness. Two or three people a year. You say, oh, that's it. No, that's not the life of an evangelist. That's just a regular person doing the work of an evangelist. An evangelist has lots and lots of converts. Charles Spurgeon was an evangelist. George Whitfield was an evangelist. I was just a regular person doing the work of the gospel. And I got tired of this. So what is with this two or three people a year? Jesus says, I'm telling you, these fields are white flowers. You can go. You can go. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored. You've entered into their labor. I, I can even send you in the fields. You haven't even labored in those fields. You would just be reaping. I said, Lord, do it. And I just started praying. You know, because fundamentally, you know what my problem was? I didn't really care that people were going to hell. Maybe you cared just a little bit, but not much. You know, they'd give me a few excuses and I'd say, okay, don't want to force you. You know, if you're not interested, okay. Did Jesus say to that lady when she was speaking to him in a racist manner and condescendingly, okay, suit yourself, you'll see. A judgment will soon enough come upon you and you'll see. No, I mean, it didn't phase him. I mean, he went after him again and again. So what I did is I got books by Charles Spurgeon. And I read uh, um, The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon. Now I've read, read that book about 20 times. You say, don't you have it down yet? No. I read, I read uh, um, The Soul Winner by Charles Spurgeon five times. I read The Gospel Zeal of George Whitfield five times. Over and over again. And what I learned from those men is they really, really wanted to see people saved. They really did. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah 9.1 That's what these men used to pray. George Whitfield prayed it. Then a hundred years later, Charles Spurgeon is praying it. I said, Lord, make that my prayer. Jeremiah 9.1 And, and uh, um, uh, the two of them would also quote Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, where Rachel, in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, would say, said, Give me children or I die. These men would pray for souls. Lord, give me children or I die. If you will not give me souls, I will die. Just take my life if you're not going to give me souls. They really wanted souls. Charles Spurgeon talks about how the soul winner will be anxious for souls, will not rest when they're souls. They don't take no for an answer. They just keep going back at them. So I started to pray that. And I started to pray that every day. Lord, give me one convert a week, I prayed. Give me one convert a week. And you know what happened? started getting one convert a week. If I go a week now without seeing some convert, it just rips up my heart. And then the next week, the Lord give me like three or four. 
And when they tell me, well, I'm not really interested, that means nothing to me. I, I just totally ignore that. People, it's like bringing a, a, it's like trying to give food to a baby. I mean, sometimes they turn away. So you say, okay, you don't want to eat? I know Indian mothers don't do that. The baby says, I don't want to eat. They, 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 it doesn't matter. You're going to eat. There's no way they're going to put the kid to bed without, letting, without forcing the kid to eat something. Right? Isn't that what Indian mothers do? Shireen would do that with all our kids. I was like, he doesn't want to eat. Let him go to bed hungry. No, no, you can't do that. And uh, uh, I just go right back at him again. I pray every day now, Lord, give me, give me a convert this week. Give me a convert. And I'm just so blessed, so blessed. Last weekend I had three. One afternoon, three. Uh, um, one couple and then one other, one, one other kid. I mean, and, and you know the amazing thing about the gospel? The amazing thing. I take them always. I tell them my story about how I came to the Lord and I take them always to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is the bottom line of Christianity. After I tell them the gospel, I, say, bring, I bring them right over to this. I bring them through the bridge illustration. I say the same story that was told to me. When I got saved at the age of 18, I'd like to tell you. Okay, you're going to tell me a story about yourself. I say, tell them the story. And then I finish with Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. I said, this is what it says. This is entrance into the kingdom of God. This is what it says you have to do to be saved. You don't have to believe in Adam and Eve. You don't even have to believe in the virgin birth. You have to believe in his resurrection. Now, I only speak to educated people. That's all I speak to. Because I work in a university, so I'm speaking to an undergraduate student, or a graduate student, or a postdoc, or a professor. It's the only people I ever speak to. This thing is just, if, I, if my arm just touches it, it fires like that. So I'm trying to keep my arm lifted up. Um, so, um, I only speak with educated people, and I say this. Jesus rose from the dead. There's more evidence for his rising from the dead than any other historical event from that time in history. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. Hallucinations are not shared. He ate with his disciples. He fellowshiped with them for a period of 40 days. They touched him. They stuck his hand, their hand into the wounds in his body. But you don't even need that, I'll tell them. Because the only way I can explain that people, every week with my own eyes that I see people come to the Lord and believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only way that I can explain it, I say, look, we don't have a whole lot of data points on resurrections, right? We don't have, we don't see, it doesn't happen all the time. But God has placed that truth on your heart already. He would never make this as a step of entrance into the kingdom of God to be saved if it were not something that we could readily believe. And I said, he's already placed that truth on your heart, that Jesus Christ has risen physically from the dead. And I do this with professors too. I say exactly like this. Jesus has already placed that truth on your heart, that he's risen from the dead. 
And I see professors go from unbelieving to believing, just like that, over a period of a minute of explaining to them that that truth's already in your heart. Okay. Okay. And I'm always like, huh? It just did it. There is something miraculous here. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus has risen from the dead. That truth, He has placed on the heart of men and women who are to be saved. He's done that. I was just visiting a university. And, and what's customary is you go from office to office visiting with the different professors and then you give your seminar later on in the afternoon. And I walked into this one office. The guy said, I was just looking at your website. And then, and then I, I clicked on a YouTube video and I, and I saw what you, you had to say. He said, he said, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I knew this guy needed to be saved. If he was so struck by my testimony, li- listening to a, a seven-minute video, and he, come, he, he, was, he was from Iran, a Muslim background, five minutes, I spoke of the resurrection. I said, the truth's already there. Okay. Boom, he received it. And he, I said, you need to be discipled. You need to be discipled. I said, I'm going to find somebody to send them here to disciple you. Later on that afternoon, I walked into the office of another man. And I said, where are you from? He said, South Korea. I said, are you a Christian? You know, so many South Koreans. And he pulled a, a Bible off his desk. It was, a, it was a, a, a Korean English Bible. He said, yeah. I said, I have a task for you. You have to go disciple this guy. So I, so, so I, found, I found somebody to do the discipling of him. Again and again, graduate students, postdocs, young professional uh, uh, um, uh, physicians who are studying in the medical center. Again and again. The truth of the resurrection. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You say, well, Jesus had these miraculous powers. He could say, go call your husband. And he had this gift of this word of wisdom. He could say, well, you've had five husbands, the one you live. If I could do that, then lots of people would get saved. No, no, no. We got something more powerful. And that's the resurrection. We've got the word of the resurrection. The resurrection cuts goes right to the heart of the issue, the resurrection. And I don't take no for an answer. And I've got, I've got the, the bridge illustration on my, on my iPad. I've got the bridge illustration on my iPhone. And I take them through it. And if after 45 minutes they still say, no, no, I'm not ready, then i got a whole other set of slides after that that talk about where people go who do not receive Him. They go in the lake of fire. And I go verse after verse. And I say, don't neglect this great salvation. Maybe the word will come. He's given unto idols. Let them alone. As it says in Hosea. Or, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then usually after that, they okay, they turn. Muslims, Indians, Chinese, Americans. The truth of the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection. But what I noticed about Spurgeon and Whitfield is they really wanted to see people saved. So what I challenge the believers here to do, 
is to learn to pray every day, Lord, take out my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Take out my heart of stone that I would care that people around me are perishing, that I would care. Because if you're like me, you don't really care. Yeah, if someone happens to be saved, you're happy. But if they don't happen to get saved, it doesn't bother you. Pray that it would really bother you when people don't get saved. I would say 70, 75% of the people that I share the gospel with get saved. How can that be? I never had probabilities like that before. Never. Because I'm praying every day, Lord, save them. And he said, he's going to send me in the fields where I haven't even labored. Just met a missionary family. They came from China, in China for 15 years, American missionary family. They came to my office and they labored and labored in China. And now finally they, they've been tossed out of the country. And then I said, I want, to, well, I want to show you some of the fruit. So I just started, pulled out my phone and started calling some of my graduate students into my office. Different Chinese guys that have all gotten saved. So I want you to meet these guys. One after another, they were coming. And these people were just weeping. I said, you have labored, and I'm reaping, and we're rejoicing together. We are rejoicing together. There is really <clears throat> reaping here. Jesus said the fields are white for harvest. Why would he have lied to us? <clears throat> would Jesus have lied to us? Would he have said the fields are white for harvest? Ready, go in and take them. If it were not true, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get hold of our hearts. Because our hearts are wicked and sick. And we don't care. We might care for our own children, but not, not beyond that. Pray that God gets a hold of your heart every day. Lord, Lord, give me passion for the lost. Lord, do this in my life. Lord, let me care about the unbelievers. And then Jesus said, I'm good. I'm not even hungry anymore. I mean, I'm filled up. I'm satisfied. When you start seeing people come to the Lord, you'd be like, I'm not even hungry. That, to me, is the food. And you go rejoicing. You go rejoicing. We're reaping all this fruit. What did Paul say? He says, you are my glory, you are my joy, you are my crown. Paul said, I do everything, everything for the sake of the gospel. Everything. You may say, I'm going overboard. And No. What about Paul? Was he going overboard too? He said, I do everything for the sake of the gospel. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. I could wish myself separated from Christ accursed for my brethren according to the flesh. I mean, look at that heart. If anyone was going overboard, it's Paul was going overboard. I'm not going overboard. I need more passion. Let the Lord stir you up. And today, if you are not a believer, for anyone here who has not asked Jesus Christ into their heart, does not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, you need to come and talk to me today. Just come and talk. Just tell me. You're the guy. You're the woman. And I'll tell you the gospel. Boom. You will get saved today. How do you know? Because the word says, and they shall come. 
They shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they shall sit at the table in the kingdom of God. Luke 13, 29. It is not to the man who wills or to the man who runs, but to God who has mercy. Romans 9, verse 16. It is not up to the man who wills or to the man who runs, but to God who has mercy. It is God who opens the heart. That's why we must implore Him. Lord, open up the heart. It says it's not up to the man who wills. So a man could even want to be saved, but he's not going to get saved unless God opens, opens up the door for him. It says it's not up to the man who wills or the man who runs, meaning he does all sorts of things to try to get saved. The will and the running don't do it, but to God who has mercy. Lord, open up the door of their heart. Lord, send me into those fields that are white for harvest. And let me reap that which I haven't even sown. Let me rejoice. Let me just rejoice in that. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah 2.9 Salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. It happens because of Him. He is the one that opens the door. Salvation is of the Lord. Pray that the Lord opens up your heart. If you do not know the Lord, come and talk to me. I'll share with you. You'll get saved tonight. You will. You'll get saved tonight. Let's pray. Abba, my Father, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who has opened up the door to every heart. And Lord, I pray for these believing men and women that you'd stir up their hearts, you take out a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they would cry out, Lord, give me children or I die like Rachel did. Father, that you would stir up their hearts, that they would pray every day, Lord, give me converts. Lord, stir them up, I pray. And Father, I pray for those here who do not know you, that they would open their hearts this day and say, Lord, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is Lord and I believe in His resurrection. That they would take hold of the truth that is already there. Lord, I thank You because they are among the chosen or else they wouldn't even be here. They would be out wandering the streets. So Lord, save their souls, I pray. Don't let them go another day without getting saved. Save their souls, I pray. Because now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. I made haste and I did not delay to keep your commandments. And this is his commandment. That we believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Father, save their souls, I pray. And I commit this to you. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Amen.